The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. So good to have you here. So good to see you. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and open them up to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 22. Um, The text for today is also in the worship guide that you hopefully received when you came in. And we are in our second to last week as we journey here together through the life of Abraham. We'll wrap it up next week. And I'm so excited for today. If you are going to draw a pinnacle of Abraham's story, kind of the top moment where it all really comes together, I believe, is in these 20 or so verses that we're going to look at. So let me pray for us briefly one more time before we jump into our passage this morning. God, as we have sung, you are a great God, and we worship you this morning. God, and we come to you dependent upon you to work in our hearts, and so we ask that your spirit would be present in this place. God, that you would open our hearts to hear from you, God, and help us to respond in obedience to whatever you would have for us. We submit ourselves to you today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to think back to maybe high school, maybe college, maybe grad school, if you went to grad school. I want you to think back to the hardest final exam that you ever had. The final exam, now maybe it was the class that was difficult all the way, and so the final exam was like, I just need to pass because I have to get, an, I have to pass this class to graduate. So maybe that's why it seemed difficult. Maybe it was even a class that you enjoyed, but when you understood what the final exam was going to be, you were like, that's, that's scary. That's scary. I, I remember for me, when I think back to the hardest exam I ever had to take, most likely I think back to grad school for me. So I was in seminary studying to be a pastor, and it was with my favorite professor in grad school, actually. His name was Dr. Yarbrough. He's a New Testament scholar. And this was, I think, my third or fourth class that I had, had from him. He was a great teacher, but there was two things that were always true about Dr. Yarbrough. Number one is I knew he gave difficult tests. I'd been in his class before. Number two, he also gave a quiz every single time the class met. There was no relaxing. Every time you went to a class, you were like, can we just have one day without a quiz? And he was like, no, I've been teaching for a lot longer than you've been alive. We're having a quiz today, right? And so I remember this final exam in his class, it was on the book of Acts and all of the epistles that Paul wrote. So you're thinking about 15 books of the Bible. And the exam was this, you will get a list of verses and all you have to do is you have to tell me, he said, which book and chapter this verse is from. (laughs) By the way, the verses are all going to be in Greek, the original language in which the New Testament was written. I have never studied so hard for an exam in my life. Now, I must have studied hard enough because I did pass the class. I actually think I got an A in the class as well. But, But it was just this intense moment as you're faced with, oh my goodness, he wants us to do what? I would say if Abraham's life were to have a final exam, that this story today is that for him. And his reaction, it's not, it wasn't a a softball. It wasn't an easy final exam. This was an extremely challenging thing that Abraham was asked to do in his life. So let's jump in. Genesis chapter 22, starting at verse 1. After these things, this looks back 
to last week with the birth of Isaac, him separating out Ishmael is sent out. So after all this had revolved around Isaac being born and starting to grow up, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife. So they, both, they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Scholars estimate that this story most likely picks up about 10 years after the last story. We can kind of gather this because Isaac is clearly not some tiny child in diapers, but he's old enough and strong enough that this wood, which would have been more than just a couple sticks, he's able to physically carry upon himself during this journey. So I like to think Isaac is probably about 12 to 13 years old. He's a, a young teenager at this point. And so they go out together. And Abraham hears in the middle of the night, God shows up and says, Abraham, as he always does, here I am, God, what do you want? And then this request comes from God. And I imagine two things go through Abraham's mind. First off, you want me to do what? And then secondly, what am I going to tell Sarah? Like, uh, we're going on a little boy's trip, we're going to be back. I have no idea. I can just imagine, though, I'm sure Abraham doesn't sleep the rest of the night. What parent could, right? He doesn't sleep the rest of the night, and he tosses, and he turns, and he wrestles within himself. But notice, verse 3, what does he do? He rose early, probably because he wasn't sleeping anyways, right? But he gets up early right away, and he obeys. He, he does what God calls him to do. And it says here that God tested Abraham. We see that in verse one, that he tests him. Now, we want to be careful here because too often, I think we confuse these idea of God testing with a temptation that we see, All right, A temptation is where the desired response is towards sin in our lives. And Satan will tempt us with hopes to lure us to sin. When God tests us, it is to affirm the character that he has already built. It's for us to see the good that he is doing in our lives. And it's not meant to lead us in into sin, but into greater strength in our lives. Think of it this way. If you're a teacher or ask a teacher, when a teacher gives a test, they hope that their students will do well in the test. No teacher is like, I can't wait till y'all fail this. No, they, they want, why? Because they want them to see, hey, what you have learned, the studying, all the work that you've done, I'm gonna show you, and this is the measure to show, this is how much you've learned and how much you've grown. And so this test is for God to affirm in the character of Abraham, his own character, what he has done. 
And notice he, he wasn't ready for this test 10 years before or 20 years before. God, God waits till the moment that Abraham is ready to pass the test until he gives him this test. And he calls him to do this. And the tension is already there enough as you've journeyed through and seen how long Abraham and Sarah have had to wait for this promised son, Isaac, this miracle that was born to them. And it's even highlighted throughout the text. Notice so often, almost every time that Abraham or Isaac is named, the the attachment is to it, my son and my father. It's just to highlight this tension, this relationship that exists between them. But Abraham goes and he calls and he answers God's call to him. We're going to see three things this morning, three pictures that are in this passage. And the first is this, the first picture we see from Abraham here is a picture of faith, a picture of what faith in God practically lived out really looks like. And we, we can see this example of faith even within the text itself. I love what he says there in verse five. Don't miss it. When, when him and Isaac go off by themselves and they leave behind these two servants, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. That's plural. We will worship and plural. We will come again to you. He's already saying we're we're coming back. Both of us are. We're journeying, but but we will come back. And we see this confidence in verse 8. When when Isaac asked the question, aren't kids asking like they, they can't leave the elephant in the room? They have to poke it, right? Hey, dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham's response, verse eight, God will provide. God will provide. We get this example, this this example is taken in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, it lists so many of the Old Testament people and the examples of faith. And Abraham, and specifically this instance is highlighted, excuse me, in the book of Hebrews for Abraham's faith in God. It says this in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, so often when God tests our faith, when God wants to grow us and strengthen us, what he does is he puts us in situations where we have nothing else to depend on but his provision in our lives. Because if you're anything like me, if you have opportunity to depend on yourself, your own strength, your own intelligence, your own gifts, you will do that. And as a last resort for so many of us, after those things are ripped away, then we depend upon God. But Abraham's an example of faith in this, in that trusting God doesn't mean that we exactly know how things will turn out. Notice this, that he's like, I don't know what God's gonna do. But Abraham's like, God will provide, even if that means God will raise him from the dead. Maybe God will do something different. I don't know how, but I trust that God will. Right? I don't know how, but I trust that God will. Can we say that in our lives this morning? about what it looks like to have faith in God, the situations that we, each and every one of us are facing. We can look at it and say, listen, I don't know how God is going to do this. I don't know when God is going to do this, but I, I trust that God will provide. I trust that God will do this. See, it's, it's intertwined throughout. It's Abraham's faith. It's his trust in God. Faith and trust are the same word in the Bible. It's his faith in God that enables this response of obedience to what God calls him to. 
See, greater obedience in our lives, which if you're a follower of Jesus, that should be a goal for us every single day to walk in greater obedience to God. Greater obedience is not simply the result of greater effort. It's not that we just wake up and we're gonna try harder tomorrow, but it's often the result of greater trust in God in every single area of our lives. See, faith in the Christian life, faith is not just needed for the day we get salvation. It's not just needed to trust in Jesus for salvation. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need faith every single day, every single day. And so much of growing in our relationship with God is growing in faith, growing in trust in every single area of our lives. It's growing to trust God with our future and with our kids and with our family and with our jobs, with all the worries that come up in our life. It's growing into trusting him that he will provide, even when we don't know how, even when we don't know when. So are there areas, is there an area in your life that you need to trust, like what Abraham said, that that God will provide? You may not know how, but that God, God will. God will provide. Abraham's an example of faith in this area. Verse nine, when they came, this is now Abraham and Isaac, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Verse nine says, they came to this place which God had told them. They came to the place, even the language of this and God calling them to go somewhere that that he was going to tell them later is reminiscent of the first journey of Abraham. If you remember back in chapter 12, when God called Abraham, he's like, all right, where are we going? And God's like, I'll show you. You just have to go. So much of this story brings up reminiscent of now 35 years ago, this journey of faith that Abraham started on, even in the words that are exemplified him, of him going to the place that God will show. And Abraham here, he builds the altar, and then he binds his son Isaac and lays him on it. Now remember, Isaac is not a one-year-old. He's not two. He's not three. Isaac is most likely 12 or 13. Remember, Abraham was 100 when Isaac is born. Now, I don't know about you, but this changes the picture that I so often have in my head of this. Like Isaac is just this tiny little baby that Abraham lays on the altar. No, that's that's not the case. He was strong enough to carry all the wood up there to build the altar to begin with. Imagine what's going through Isaac's mind as he willfully submits to his father, to Abraham in this moment. So I don't know about you, but if if there's a wrestling match, no offense to those of you who are of age in here, if there's a wrestling match between a 13-year-old and a 113-year-old, I'm taking a 13-year-old, right? Like I, Isaac could have gotten away. He could have just shoved his dad and been like, nope, you can't catch me and ran away. Like he, he could have done that if he physically wanted, right? But he, he stays and submits and allows his father to do this. No words here are spoken. Just imagine the silence, the tension as Isaac looks at Abraham and Abraham looks down at this son that he so loves. Just at the moment, at the last second, God calls out and says, don't lay a hand on him. But now I have seen, Abraham, that you are willing to give up anything for me. 
You have not withheld even this most valuable thing to you, your son that you've waited a hundred years for, that you've waited for so long for, you won't even withhold him from me. I see that you have surrendered everything to me. See, the second picture in this passage is a picture of surrender. This passage is a picture of surrender. What does it look like to give God every single thing in our lives, to give all of us to who he is. And Abraham has shown this total surrender to God that he would not withhold anything from him. In commenting on this passage and this idea of surrendering to God, I was very helped this week by another pastor who pointed out four areas of our lives that every Christian needs to to consciously surrender to God. Four areas of our life that if we don't consciously do this, we gravitate toward just to holding on and, and not giving things, these things over to him. The first area of our lives that we need to make sure we're surrendering to God is in our possessions. That we need to surrender our possessions to God. The New Testament, the Bible says that you can't serve God and money. But for many Christians, we sure do want to see if we can be the exception to the rule, don't we? We're like, okay, well, let's see how far we can get along that. I was reminded this week of a story of a young man who encountered Jesus. We don't know a lot about this young man, just that he was young, he had a lot of money, and he was a powerful man who was known as a ruler. And he showed up to Jesus and he asked him, what must I do to have eternal life? It's a great question. And Jesus looks at the commandments and tells him that this is what you must do. And he says, I've done that. I've done all of that. And Jesus says, all right, I just got one more thing for you. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. It says the man turned and walked away because he could not give up the stuff in his life. See, for some of us, our stuff owns us. Not that we own our stuff, but our stuff owns us and it has our hearts. Now I wanna make sure there is nothing wrong with having things, with even having nice things. I'm not saying that if you have a nice house or a nice car, that is sinful, not at all. But there is a reason that so much of the Bible, so much of Jesus's teaching talks about how hard it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Why is that? Because the more possessions, the more money that we have, the easier it is to trust in that rather than to trust in Jesus. Say, this will bring me satisfaction. This will bring me fulfillment. This is all I need. I'm gonna depend on this rather than trusting in God. As the New Testament says, where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. And in such an affluent world, and even in this affluent area that we live in, there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to make sure that our possessions, our money, our houses, our cars, all the things that we have, are surrendered to God. And if God wants us to sell it, to give it up, that we would be glad to do so for him. The second area of our lives that we need to make sure surrender to him is are in our vocation, our vocation, the careers that we have. It is easy in our world, and especially I think in this, in this high area of such knowledge and influence to allow our careers to become idols in our lives that we, we find our identity not in God, but we find our identity in, in the positions that we have, in the companies that we work for, in the amount of people that we supervise or manage over. Again, the solution to this is not to go in tomorrow and quit your job. I do not want to wake up to a whole bunch of emails saying, all right, Pastor Michael, I went in and quit my job. What do you got work for wise for me? 
I got nothing. I'm sorry. All right. So don't go and quit your jobs tomorrow. That's not what I'm saying. But, but the reality is so much of our lives are consumed with career as being the center of who we are. That we would follow Jesus anywhere. We would do anything for Jesus. And oh, but if it meant to switch careers or to stop doing that for a season to focus on something else, that would be really, really hard for a lot of us. Have we surrendered even that area of our lives to God? Not saying that he's going to do it or going to ask, but if he did, what would our response be? Because for some of us, we almost value our career more than we value God. The third area of our lives we have to surrender to him are our dreams. The dreams that we have for our lives. It is so easy, isn't it, to take our dreams, what we want for our future, to find like one or two verses in the Bible to back it up and then say, oh no, the dreams I have for my life are exactly what God wants and to go on living our lives thinking this is exactly what God wants from me. It's so easy in our world where so many of us, if like me, you've grown up your whole context in this country, just to assume that the American dream is what God wants for your life that he wants you to have abundant success and opportunity. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to have a nice house and maybe another house as well that you can go to for vacation. He wants you to have 2.5 kids. He wants you to have two cars. He wants you to have all of this stuff. And so much of our dreams for our life are dreams about the American dream and not, and not what God would actually have for us. And so often our dreams, our dreams of what our futures could look like just reflect our own selfishness and self-centered nature. Question I heard many years ago that I've never been able to forget is this. If all of your dreams came true, would just your life be changed or would eternity be changed? Because for so many of us, our dreams are just about me. It's that I would have this, that my family would have this, that this would happen, and it has nothing to do with God or his plan for the world or how we could be helping with anything like that, but it's all focused on ourselves. Again, it's not wrong to have dreams for the future, but it's wrong if we hold on to our dreams rather than surrendering them them, to what God would have for us. The fourth area of our lives we need to make sure we're surrendering to God is our relationships. Our relationships. Our relationships can very easily become the biggest idol, the biggest source of identity in our lives. That we are a parent, we are a spouse, that this is who we are. Now, of course, of course, the Bible teaches us to love our family, to love our wives, love our husbands, to love our kids. That is definitely true. But so often we place all of our value, all of our identity on that and that alone, not on who we are in God. And that's even what God is calling Abraham to do here, right? Will you even surrender your relationships with your family to me? It's amazing when you look back over what Abraham has gone through to think of what he surrendered in following after God. He was 75 when God showed up and called him away. He most likely had some sort of a career. He had relationships. He had friendships. He had lots of family there. He had all of that, and he surrendered it all to following after God. His dream was most not likely not wandering around in the desert, but God changed it. He surrendered that to him. And ultimately, even now, he surrenders his own family, his own son that he's waited so long for. He surrenders that to God. A well-known author, A.W. Tozer, looks at this picture of Abraham surrendering 
even his son to God. And he uses it in his book to talk about what it looks like to live a life totally surrendered to God. And he says this in his book, Pursuit of God. Now here was a man, Abraham, wholly surrendered, a man utterly obedient, a man who possessed nothing. Although Abraham had everything, he possessed nothing. And he writes in his chapter about the spiritual secret of possessing nothing. Now what he means by that is this, Abraham still was wealthy, he still had his family. But he, he says in his book that Abraham probably never used the adjective mine the rest of my life. It's not my kid, it's the kids that God have given me. It's not my wealth, it's the wealth that God has blessed me with. It's not my house, it's the house that God has blessed me with. He had everything still, but he possessed, none of it was his, it was all God's. He had surrendered everything to him. And what a beautiful picture of what it looks like to have God sitting on the center of your heart that every single area of our life is fully surrendered to him. And as Abraham sees, and as we will see, as we grow in this in our lives, the greatest joy, the greatest happiness, the greatest fulfillment is always found in surrendering all we have to Jesus. We will find everything when we possess nothing, but when we give it all, surrender it all to him. And so God intervenes, tells Abraham, don't, don't kill your son. Because of this, I have seen that you will not withhold anything from me. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. That place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. I love this picture from before. Abraham says, God will provide. And so what does he do when he does see God's provision? He names the place, the Lord will provide. Etched forever that this is the God who will provide. And we see here the blessings of God poured out upon Abraham once again, the promises once again of what God is going to do through Abraham's family for the future. And in the moment that, that God intervenes, right, what, what does he say? He opens Abraham's eyes to a ram that was off to the side. And this ram is brought in. And instead of Isaac, his son, now being sacrificed, the ram takes the place and the ram is sacrificed, as it says in verse 13, as a burnt offering instead of his son. See, the third picture we see in this passage is a picture of substitution. A picture of substitution. That the ram took the place of Isaac on the altar as the sacrifice. And throughout scripture, this is an important concept that gets fuller and fuller as we read throughout through the rest of the story. And it's this idea, this theological concept called the substitutionary atonement. 
The substitutionary atonement, two words. Substitutionary, we use that word a lot still, right? A substitute takes the place of another. When, when the teacher is sick, who do you get? You get the substitute. When a player is tired, who comes in? The substitute player comes in. They take the place of someone else. And this idea that someone else takes the place of someone, the substitutionary. And an atonement is a sacrifice, but a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath, that fulfills the requirement. And we start to see this picture take place even in this story. We see it fuller throughout the rest of the Old Testament in the sacrificial system that's set up for Israel. The reason that is, isn't that it was the the end all be all, but that still starts to point towards ultimately Jesus as the substitutionary atonement for us. Now it is a powerful image, a powerful picture of offering oneself as a substitute to take the place of someone else. And this isn't just a biblical picture, but this is such a powerful theme. This is picked up all throughout the stories that are known in our world. This last week, as I was thinking of of this idea of substitution, I thought of the book series and the movie that was really popular about 10 years or so ago called The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games. I don't know if you remember this or not, but in the first in the first book, in the first movie, there's this scene. It centers around a girl named Katniss, and it's in this dystopian future where all of these kids have to be lined up, and every kid has their name in a box, and if your name is drawn, you're sent off to the Capitol, basically to battle for the death, for the entertainment of these select folks. And it's this horrible thing, and she's so nervous because she's older, so her name's in there more times. She's so nervous that her name is going to be called. And it's this tension throughout, what what am I going to do if I have to go? What am I going to do if I have to go? And then they're there, and all the kids are lined up in some ceremony as they pull the name out. And suddenly they read not her name, but the name of her little sister, who's young and small and would have no way to defend for herself at all. And suddenly this panic overcomes Katniss and she doesn't know what to do until she raises her hand amidst all of it and screams, I volunteer. I take her place. I I move, take me instead of her. And it's this powerful picture of someone loving someone so much they would move and take the place of someone else. See, I don't know if you're a Christian this morning or not, but I don't think you have to be a Christian to agree with this statement of Jesus in John 15, where he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It's the greatest picture of love, whether you're a Christian or not, that someone would lay down their life to save someone else, that they would lay it down for their friends. In our world today, we see this all throughout as what an example of love looks like. In our stories that withstand the test of time, this theme comes up over and over and over again. If you think of the Chronicles of Narnia and Aslan taking the place of Edmund to die for him. If you think of a newer story of Harry Potter taking the place and offering himself to die in place of his friends. The book's been out for like 10 years, so if I ruined the ending, I'm sorry, all right? But it's been out for a while. But ultimately, that's what the story is about. This theme is picked up in Star Wars. It's picked up in so many different movies of characters, of people being willing to die and themselves sacrificing themselves to save someone else. Why does that theme keep coming up? Why is it the stories that are told over and over again? And those aren't Christians telling those stories all the time. That's just our world. Why does this keep coming up? Why are our hearts so, so drawn to this? Well, I think because deep down, Each and every one of us 
We want to experience a love like this. Each and every one of us want to say, I want to know someone who would love me so much that they would take my place. Someone who would love me so much that they would die for me. That's why our hearts are drawn because we want to experience that kind of love in our lives. And the reality is that all of us can. All of us can experience that kind of love in our lives. Romans chapter five says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the story in Genesis 22 is just a small part of the, the larger story of Abraham's life, but it's just a part of the larger story of all of God's story, of all of scripture and what it's unfolding to. And if you're like me, when you read this story, th these emotions rise within you. It's kind of like, why would God ask Abraham to do that? That seems crazy, doesn't it? It seems extreme. Why would God ask a parent to offer their own child? That is ridiculous. It's insane. And I always knew this was a powerful picture. This was something crazy that God was asking for Abraham to do. And then I really got it even more the first time I ever held my daughter when she was born. That I'm like, what, what the world? See, here's the thing. Without a hesitation at all, I would gladly die for her. I can't say the same thing about any one of, of you today. I'm sorry. I can't. I, I love you all. You're great. But I can't say that without hesitation, I would gladly do it. Why? Because the love that I have for her is different than the love that I have for anyone else. And every parent here gets exactly what I'm talking about. The love of a parent for their child is so unique. And so we say, what, why would God ask Abraham to do this? Why would he do this? Because God is trying to help us get this, that he's not asking Abraham to do something that he himself is not willing to do. That God sent his son, his one and only son, whom he loved. And the love that we have for your kids is a small picture of how much God the Father loves God the Son. He has loved them for eternity past and will love him forever. It's just a glimpse of the love you've ever felt pales in comparison to the love that's in God the Father's heart towards his Son. And God, in love, looked at his Son, whom he perfectly and eternally has loved, and says, I will give him as a substitute for you and for me. The fact is that there is someone who loves us enough that they would take our place. And God loves us so much that he didn't just send anyone, he sent his very own son to take our place. That he died on the cross, not because he did anything wrong, but because we did. He took our place, he bore our sin. It's a picture of love. This story in Genesis 22 that points to that is the most powerful picture of love ever seen in the world. If you're a Christian this morning, I wanna remind you of how much God loves you. That he said to Abraham, you, weren't, you were willing to give your son. God too did not withhold his son. The lamb of God sent from heaven, eternally loved by the father, took my place, took your place. You are so dearly loved by God that God would send his son to take your place for your sin. And if you've never believed in Jesus, 
I would invite you today to consider how much God loves you. That God would send his one and only son while we were still sinners in all of our mess, that God would send his one and only son to take our place, to bear our sin so that we could have a relationship with him. The story says that God will provide. God has provided salvation in Jesus. And he calls on us to respond in faith, to say, I believe, I trust God that you took my place on the cross because you loved me so much. And when we believe that Jesus took our place, that he took our sin, that we can be made new and we can have a relationship with God. God, we thank you for your love. It is so undeserved. And we will never fully grasp how much you love us. But God, I pray that as we leave this morning, we would leave changed because we've caught just a little more of a glimpse of the love of the Father flowing to us. We are so undeserving and we are so profoundly grateful and thankful for your love. God, and for anyone here who's listening today who has not believed in you, God, as they catch this glimpse of your love for them, a love that would send your very own son to die for us. God, would today be the day that they believe in you, they trust in your sacrifice, that you love us so much that you would even send your son to take our place. You are indeed the God who is worthy of all of our worship and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.